Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. Today we are continuing in our in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 15, a, the, a very well-known chapter, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 32. And this is the famous um, uh, parable of the prodigal son uh, that you are all familiar with. In fact, in saying that, I think you have an immediate image of what we're going to talk about. Um, please note that there's these first three verses that are attached to this, and Alan's going to kind of explain why that's included with this particular passage in the in lectionary. So, Alan, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, yeah, our gospel lesson this week does take us into the heart of the journey to Jerusalem in Luke, and especially into the heart of the parables unique to Luke's gospel. Um, the parable of the prodigal son is a classic parable, I think, for understanding Jesus' ministry and how his view of God was so scandalous to the Jewish religious leaders. And we've been talking a little bit about how we're, we're dealing with the journey to Jerusalem narrative in Luke's gospel mm-hmm. and how it addresses the theme of discipleship. I do want to note that there are some New Testament scholars who see these parables that are unique to Luke as not really addressing discipleship at all, but really critiquing conventional attitudes and com- by commending outcasts and ridiculing mm-hmm. community leaders like the Jewish religious leaders. Um, I, and I would say along these lines, you do see in these parables unique to Luke in this uh, narrative of the journey to Jerusalem, an extensive use of irony and even sarcasm mm-hmm. in that they often present the opposite of what discipleship looks like. We saw that when we looked at some of the parables in Matthew a while mm-hmm. back, but mm-hmm. um, we're going to see it even more clearly here. And, and to me, one of the best examples of this is the parable of the dishonest steward. Um, you know, if you try to read that parable at face value, it's just, it's not going to make any sense. It's very clear there that Jesus is using very strong irony to, to, to basically make the parable say the opposite of what he's really trying, the point he's really trying to make. I think that, I think as readers, that can make it confusing for us. I mean, I I, I mean, I always remember thinking of the parables as, as being something that should be easily understood when you hear it. And yet... Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure that it is that obvious. Well, I think the people of Jesus' day would have got the irony in what he was saying. I, it's just hard for us right. when we're at, a, at such a distance and reading it and not hearing him say it. Right. You know, I right. think it's harder for well, us to get And I get think that. it's harder for us to, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, just naturally we tend to look at biblical stuff as right. not having things like irony and sarcasm we in think it, of right? It as we want to take it straightforward because it, we take the Bible seriously. Right, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, I, it it actually makes it much more colorful and interesting when you can when you see these elements in it and and much more human yeah. right and how human rhetoric works but yet at the same time I think it's not how we well and I've said many times it. I've said many times you know to to interpret the Bible literally is to interpret it in light of how the, what the mm-hmm. message was intended to convey given mm-hmm. you know the situation and all the factors involved so you know i i however you know in acknowledging that i personally don't think that we need to see a hard and fast distinction between Jesus' aim of teaching his disciples right. and his criticisms of conventional right, right. attitudes, because I think they kind of go hand I in hand. I agree. I think they go together, He's too. He's trying that makes to sense. teach them not to, not to right. get, get caught up in those conventional attitudes. Right, right. Yeah. So um, as we're moving through this, and I think, I think 
we putting it into this context that that we are seeing this this both talking to disciples and 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 making this commentary i think that falls into why we have these first three verses surely surely yeah and and this is an interesting feature of the parables unique to luke's gospel um and it is that luke often provides the clue to at least how he understands the parable with his introductory and or concluding Mm -hmm. remarks so, for example, the series of parables in Luke 15 is introduced by, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And that's the point at which the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, that's the point that the, mm-hmm. all of those parables address, is the fact that people were grumbling and saying Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Mm-hmm. So that gives us a clue already as to what what these parables are about. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really something that's amazing because you don't see that in, in some of the other gospels. Luke, however, gives us this. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the parable of the importunate widow, you know, Luke introduces it by saying, Jesus told them this parable so I'm, I'm paraphrasing here so that they would know that they should pray and not lose heart so right I mean, right he gives, so he you, gives us this kind of he gives you the interpretive clue mm-hmm. right off the bat that's yeah. that's handy yeah. that's yeah. handy um and in this interpret in, in this beginning it says all what do you make yeah, of that yeah. does that mean everyone that came well i think uh, you know i think it's unlikely that every single tax collector and or sinner was coming to hear jesus but this is kind of this is a feature that's that's common in luke and, and acts um he, luke uses these these kind of summarizing statements so i think we should understand it as a great many tax Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, another thing that that struck me about about this one too. I mean, I think there's I think there's some kind of parallels with some of the messages from Luke, and one was the the role of meals. I mean, yep. this one has this this big feast going on, yes, and we indeed. see this in other places. Yes, eating, eating yes, metaphor. indeed. And and in the world of Jewish religious leaders, you know, one's associations, particularly the people you ate with was kind of a boundary marker for the Jewish community, and it was also a marker for one's piety or mm-hmm. lack thereof. And so people, you were judged as either pious or not pious based on who you ate with or didn't eat with. Mm, so that, we're getting more of an idea of who these people are. And then I, I think, I guess, maybe for our audience, um, maybe tell us a little more about tax collectors. That doesn't in itself necessarily mean anything to people listening. I mean, they may understand what tax collectors meant in the day. Yeah, so tax collectors were despised because they were collaborating with the Roman government at the point that was most offensive to Jewish people. They had to pay taxes to a foreign government. Now, I, I find it more interesting to look at the term sinners because sinners... You know, we think of as it it could refer to immoral Mm -hmm. persons, but probably from the perspective of the Pharisees and the scribes, they were referring to the people of the land. This was actually a Hebrew phrase, am ha'aretz, the Mm. people of the land. And that was a derogatory term that they used to describe the common people who could not spend all their time studying Mm -hmm. and practicing the law in detail. And so they applied the term sinner as broadly as possible. And these were people to be avoided, but... You know, Jesus basically confronts that 
assumption that we're supposed to avoid sinners like the plague, so to speak. Right. Um, he he ac- confronts that assumption head on with the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, and he actually turns it on its head. You know, because that Jesus Jesus sought people out mm-hmm. who, who needed uh, to come back. Right. To God. Right. Yeah. I. I I love this. In their mind, they were the they were the ones who were truly pious, who were truly devoted to God, and anybody who didn't spend their whole time devoted to God like they were were sinners. Right, right, right. Yeah. So another one of the questions I have regarding um, this kind of chapter fifteen is these other two parables there, um, and I guess when I was thinking about this and looking at it, it you know it seems like they have. Re- uh, they they are relative to the the one we're talking about today, the prodigal oh, son. And, well, are you gonna are you gonna add this in when you read? I it? probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't just because it's thirty two verses. What I would do is bring in the content of these two parables into my sermon because I think it's important not to skip over the content of the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Just as Luke gives us this introductory sort of remark about Mm -hmm. uh, how the Jewish leaders were grumbling about him receiving sinners, I think these two parables also give us interpretive clues to understanding the parable of the prodigal son. Um, You know, these The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin show clearly in contrast to the Jewish leaders' disregard for quote-unquote sinners that Jesus advocates the very opposite point of view. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents Mm -hmm. than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance. Now, again, here I would say that Jesus is being ironical. Mm-hmm. Because right, 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 uh, and, and he may even be he may even be using sarcasm <laughs> here, because elsewhere I think Jesus makes it clear that there is no such thing as right. a righteous person who does not need repentance. And I think this is an important premise for helping us understand the parable of the I, prodigal son. I, and I like that too. And it, that's always made me made me wonder. I think we're going to see as we get into the details of the parable of the prodigal son. Everybody needs. <laughs> everybody needs some help. Everybody okay. needs help. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of takes us to this next step, then, which um, is the the parable itself. Yeah. So Luke introduces the parable of the prodigal son by setting it up as we're familiar with. The younger of two sons asked his father to give him his share of the property he would inherit. Now. You know, even today, the matter of inheritance can be a serious matter. I mean, matter. I mean, people, families stop speaking to each other as a result of the way the inheritance is divided. Mm-hmm. And in that day as well, you know, a matter of inheritance was was a big issue. And in fact, in Luke twelve thirteen, we have the occasion of someone approaching Jesus and asking him to resolve a, a, right. an inheritance dispute. Right, right, right. Now, you know, I, I often wonder why did the father agree to this request. And I I think sometimes I wonder, well, maybe since the older brother was set to inherit a double portion of the estate, which was his, that was the law, perhaps the father was thinking that his younger son might be frustrated with the prospects of living under his older brother's thumb for the rest of his life, and that he may have wanted to strike out on his Mm -hmm. own and make a livelihood for himself. So who, who, we don't really know what the father's motivation was, but I've wondered if maybe that was that was in the back of his mm, mind. Yeah, it, 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 of course, they don't tell us. Right. But I do think that's an interesting question to think about why, you know, why would, why, the father, why, why would, would the he do that at that point? Yeah. At, at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what happens next in our parable? 
Well, the parable continues by telling us that the younger son left and went to a distant country where he squandered everything recklessly, basically. So we, we basically see that that was not the son's intention, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the younger son not only went to a distant country, which I would say indicates that he left Jewish territory. Yeah, yeah, and I think so. And that was significant in and of itself. I think so, too. That he that, left Jewish territory. That's kind of a turning my back on, on not absolutely. only my family, but on my heritage. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and, you know, it, it sounds like his intent all along was to live it up. You know, Luke mm. says that he squandered his property and the, the language that he uses here is also unusual. Diascorpizo in the New Testament usually means to scatter, but here Luke uses it to, to say that the younger son squandered his property. And, and that statement, along with the notion that he wasted his money in dissolute living, as the new RSV translates it, the, the adverb is asotos, and it means basically living recklessly or wastefully or thoughtlessly. So both of these ideas, that he squandered his property by living recklessly, was the basis for the naming of the parable. Mm-hmm. To be prodigal means to spend money in a recklessly extravagant way. I think that's really significant because I don't think most people really know what prodigal means. I think most people assume prodigal means the son who left. Yeah, or the um, son who was lost or went yeah, astray. Yeah, or but this is a much deeper word than yeah, this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He, he squandered his money. I mean, he, he, he made the choice to, to go to the distant country, to mm-hmm. leave his heritage behind, to squander his, his wealth with reckless living. And, and so, in a sense, to some extent, in contrast to the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, you know, in one sense, the father did not simply lose mm-hmm. his younger son, but rather the son chose to take his inheritance and leave right. and to squander it recklessly. So, uh, nevertheless, he will be called the lost son later in the parable, and that connects this parable with the two uh, other parables as well. Well, yeah, it, it, I'm liking, I want to go back to a little bit the agency here. This is, this is a very intentional yep, walk this away. This is a ma- more pointed and personal and detailed situation. All right, so what happens next? Well, it doesn't take a great deal of foresight to be able to understand what the outcome is going to be. I mean, he's spending his money recklessly. He spent his whole fortune. And not only that, but the parable tells us that a famine struck that land. And eventually, basically, he was, he was so destitute that he wound up getting a job feeding pigs. But even at that, he was still so poor that he would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. And I like this pig thing because... Yeah. Obviously, it's not a Jewish person raising the pigs. Um, I mean, that's right. you know that's kind of a given. So this right. kind of emphasizes that he is no longer Jewish territory, yeah. and now he's doing something he's that not is not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, he's and he's nowhere near Kansas. Doing something that was, is would be completely repugnant to yes. his community. I, I mean, yeah, not, you know, feeding pigs, just getting a job feeding pigs would have been work beneath contempt for any self-respecting Jewish yeah, person. And yeah. basically, I think we're meant to see that this man has lost even his ba- most basic self-respect. Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. but more than that, he was so hungry <laughs> I know, it gets that worse. he would have eaten pig <laughs> fodder. I mean, if you've ever been around pigs, you know what pigs eat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is just inconceivable right. that and someone would be that hungry that they would want to eat pig fodder. As I think about that, you know, I know the modern context, we, we now look at pigs a little differently. People have mm-hmm. pigs as pets and, um, you know, people are like, oh, they're really smart animals. And but I mean, it goes, obviously that part is there, but it goes back to the clean and unclean foods. Of course, foods. of I course, mean, right. Pigs were considered. Right. 
right. to be unclean, and so that was right. the reason for the total. Oh well, of course, of uh, course, yeah. Uh, that that's, reprehensible that, that's attitude towards them. Exactly, and yeah. it all comes together. And um, I think that has been with us until just recent times, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, as I get my yeah. point is that even when I was growing up, it was still the pigs were dirty, you yeah. know. And now yeah. my good pastor friend has. Two or three of them is Pat. What happens to the younger son? So the parable then takes a significant turn. Uh, the parable tells us that Luke, the younger son came to himself. You know, mm-hmm. basically he recognized that his father's hired hands were well treated, well fed. So he resolved to return to his father and say to him, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, basically, I think what we're meant to see is that the younger son comes to the place, he sort of hits bottom, so to speak, and he repents. And I think this is interesting because the way Luke words the change is unique in the New Testament. He came to himself. Uh, that that's I mean that's something that is so common in the English language we might think that it right. would be in the New Testament right. this is the only place in the whole New Testament wow. where this phrase occurs but I nevertheless it's a I think it's a very helpful sort of paraphrase of the meaning of metanoia or repentance mm-hmm. uh, that we saw that was already introduced in the preceding um, right. um, uh, parables right and um, so. I, you know, from that standpoint, this phrase is very insightful, I think, as a, as a, as a way of explaining what does repentance mean. And, and when you think about also his, his plan, you know, he proposes to return to his father, confess his sin, beg to be allowed to live, not as his son, but as a hired hand. Mm-hmm. I think this also provides insight into the nature of metanoia or repentance and the humility, the change of behavior and attitude, the willingness to acknowledge wrongdoing, all of that fills out the meaning mm-hmm. of the term repentance. Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and of course, my mind's going back to that. Some what we talked about last week, this idea of realignment. And, sure. Um, and and to realign takes this kind of ahaness. I we'll talk with the reformers later that how they tended to view this that this was something that that you know he did it became a work kind of thing with mm, the Catholic right. Church, but. I don't think it's that. I don't see no, it that way. No. I, th- I mean, I would say I would say it this way. Um, you know, repentance is a grace. Repentance right. is a gift yeah. of grace, right? Right. And, and and so, you know, something is working in him that enables him to come to himself. Right. And it's not just something he does on his own. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And but but nevertheless, it's important that he does come to himself Mm -hmm. and he does have this change of heart and he follows up the change of heart not only with thinking not only with forming formulating the plan but carrying it out right right he he does something about right right sin which leads us to the next scene (laughs) so in the next scene the son puts his plan into action but at this point the focus of the parable shifts from the younger son to the father and basically, while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and embraced him. Uh, which, you know, in, in, in that world and in that cultural context, that would have been seen as disgraceful behavior on the part of a head of a household. Right. One would not do that. But basically... This is, I think we're meant to see the depth uh, and the fullness of the father's compassion mm-hmm. in that he, he, while he was still far off, the father was filled with compassion. He ran and embraced mm-hmm. him. And even, you know, I've always, I've always found it interesting that the son only got 
partway through his his planned mm-hmm. apology, his mm-hmm. planned speech, when the father ordered that he be clothed and that they prepare to have a celebration in honor of his return. This is remarkable. And I was thinking about this, too. I mean, as bad a shape as he was in, if he mm. was not clothed, he would have been unclean, Oh yeah. too. And so there's just an entire... <laughs> he would have needed a bath. He would have, yeah, there's an entire, like... Uh, space well and i was just thinking ritually unclean too probably would have been implied with that as well so this is a big deal it's it's stripping away and the the centrality of love is taking over this kind of radical love all those external boundaries Mm -hmm. love transcends those and and will not be you know will not be put off by those external uh yeah yeah that's it's 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 a really big deal um and, and so, yeah, tell us more now about this um, compassion and how it's used here. Yeah, so the, the parable emphasizes the father's compassion for his son, and it's uses, it uses an interesting verb. It uses the verb splanknidzomai, which means simply to have compassion on someone. But I think the interesting thing to me is that except for here and one other instance in the New Testament, this verb is used only in the Gospels to describe Jesus' response to the people who came to him in need. Wow. I think that was intentional on Luke's part. Mm-hmm. I think that that choice of wording in this parable was intentional on Luke's part because any audience who was hearing this Greek text read aloud to them, I think they would have been clued in to the fact that Splank, they had heard Splanknizomai before, and it was in connection with the way Jesus responded to people who came wow. to him in need. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a word kind of set aside, at least by Luke, um, that's, well, it has it has a broader context in its usage in the gospel tradition. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So again, the intensity of the compassion is heightened by the fact that the father saw the prodigal while he was still a long way off, ran to the prodigal, embraced the prodigal, kissed him when they met, kissed him. <laughs> you know when they met, mm-hmm. right? Talk about breaking boundaries of clean and unclean. Right, right. right. And and you know simply. All of this together, again, as I said, I think it would have been shocking to the people who heard this parable from Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and the fact that he embraced and clothed and celebrated with a return, uh, celebrated his return with a party, that would have just increased the shock value. I mean, right. this is just this was not done. Right. This was just not done. I mean, the 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 you know, if the father the father would have been seen as generous if he had allowed the son to come back and live as a hired hand on the estate. That would have been generous. Mm-hmm. That would have been not like like really generous. Right. But to but to receive him back as a as a son, as if nothing had ever happened, and to claim him in this way, I, I think it's just I, I think it's really amazing. Mm-hmm. I do too. I do too. You know, and and it, as I said before, you know, the son doesn't even finish his prepared speech before the father interrupts to claim his son. And later, mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. as it's described, he's described his son who was dead and has come to life again, who was lost and has been found. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I, th- I really think again, this is where this is where the content of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin comes into play. Right, because right, right. The response on the part of the father, I think, is meant to illustrate the point that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents yes. than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need right. repentance. What I think, a couple of things I find interesting. One is. When I think about when I think about this parable, this is where it stops in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. this is where it compares to the other two. And but I think it's interesting because 
as we will talk about in a few minutes here, this this parable has another has another a whole, act. A whole and so final scene. A final scene, if you will. And so I think um and Luke included that in. So I think it adds on to what sure we have does. because, but I do think most people, this is what they, this is the only part of it. They really right. think about is right. this, these, this, Oh, he came home and everyone's happy and we have a party and it's good. Right. And there's more to it than there that. There is more to it. Than um, that. I did want to ask before we move on to that though, because when I did some of my research for this as well, the, um, the particular author um, thought that perhaps a better title for this would be prodigal, Father. Yeah. Well, you know, to me, the point of of the father's action in regard to the return of the prodigal is is a, a memorable, just a really unforgettable demonstration mm-hmm. of the kind of mercy and unfailing love that defines God's character, not only in Jesus' view, but really for the Bible. This is the biblical view of God's character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and so I think it's, yeah, almost, it's almost like an, okay. impl- uh, you know, uh, um, uh, kind of almost a subtle rebuke uh, of the Pharisees and the scribes mm. for not being willing to extend that kind of compassion to quote-unquote sinners. Right. Because th- this is not just Jesus' view of God. This is the right. biblical view right, of God's right. mercy. Right, 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 and, right. and unfailing love. God's love extends to to embrace the, all those who who come to Him. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it has been commonly observed that we might well call this the parable of the prodigal father because the father would have been seen as sort of um, uh, reckless mm-hmm. with his compassion. With his compassion, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it it forces us to look at the word maybe the what by the way what the word actually means as opposed to kind of our assumption and it means lost right right <laughs> right, right, right. Um, yeah, so but as, as we mentioned before that is not the end of the parable so right. what happens next well and i think it's important that that luke's uh, parable of the prodigal the parable of the prodigal son in luke's gospel goes beyond this because we have not yet seen the depth and the extent yes. of the father's compassion i agree you, we, we have not yet seen that in this parable. Yeah, and I agree. And I think this last section really takes us to another space. It mm-hmm. does indeed. The final scene illustrates, I think, the depth and extent of the mm-hmm. father's compassion. The older son heard the celebration. After learning that his brother had returned, he became angry and refused to join the celebration. So the father once again demonstrates his compassion. This is something I think we should see. It's not it's not right, spelled right. out explicitly, but I think we should see that the father is again demonstrating his compassion by coming out and pleading with the older brother. Right. You know, again, this was not done. This was not something a head of the household would do. If the older brother wanted to throw a temper tantrum, he could just stay outside. You right, know? right. The father had a certain dignitas that he was supposed to mm-hmm. maintain, right, mm-hmm. in, in that cultural context. So once again, the father sets that aside, goes out to his older son out of his compassion and mm-hmm. his love for his older son and pleads with him. Mm-hmm. Now, initially, the older son will not be put off. Not only does he describe his life and obedience to the father as a kind of slavery, but he even refuses to claim his younger brother, calling him instead this son of yours. And I think that's really, um, I want to emphasize that because I think one can just assume, oh, that was just some weird cultural thing. And I think this is very intentional to, to kind of dismiss that he's not my brother. That's your son. 
Well, and, and I think I think we can draw a parallel with the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes were right. rejecting the quote unquote common people, the common people as quote unquote sinners, and and mm-hmm. you know in a sense disowning them right. as as people worthy of their compassion. Right. 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 So mm-hmm. so there's a similar kind of thing going here. And I don't think I'm I don't think I'm allegorizing the parable too much to see that analogy between the setting and and how the parable um, addresses right. this. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, uh, the, the, the brother's comments, the older brother's comments betray the source of his anger. He's jealous that the prodigal son has wasted the father's goods and reckless living while he has worked like a slave and never disobeyed the father's commands. I would say basically, again, the older brother is kind of representing the conventional system of reward and punishment mm-hmm. that the Pharisees and the scribes were adopting when they looked down on the quote-unquote mm-hmm. sinners mm-hmm. Uh, in the way they did and when they criticized Jesus for associating with sinners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, again, basically, you know, the older brother thinks that the father's generosity towards his brother is unfair uh, rather than recognizing and this is, this is important, rather than recognizing that he had also benefited from the Father's compassion, right, from the Father's right. con- consistent, steadfast love, you know? And, mm-hmm. and uh, again, I think these, the, the, this whole section uh, of the, the final scene of the parable um, illustrates uh, the conventional attitudes expressed by the Pharisees and scribes at the beginning of the I chapter. I agree, but, I agree. But in a sense, implicitly includes them Right. In God's unfailing love. You know, God's right, unfailing right. love not only extends to the quote-unquote sinners, it extends to those quote-unquote righteous persons who right. don't need any repentance. Well, you know, what's interesting about this is, I mean, and I, I love this about the parables because the parables obviously are written for a time, but they have, they're so ageless. And mm-hmm. I think we see this here too because I think this is very much human nature. And while we love this story of this forgiveness and sometimes we see ourselves in that role, many of us identify with that oh, elder sure. son. Absolutely but so I too. think what's missing is that I don't think many of us realize the compassion of the father yes. for that one. I think that that piece often overlooked here. Um, and I think that's really kind of the clue. And I think it's why it's included. I Otherwise, we would have cut it off at the, at the beginning too. of that second scene. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, in this final scene, the father's compassion pushes through even the stingy, self-righteous, and mean-spirited attitude of the older brother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the father begins his, his, um, his effort to try to plead with the son by reassuring him that he truly is his son. Mm -hmm. But he insists that they had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And note, it's important, I think, that the father corrects the older brothers, Uh this son of yours, disowning his brother, with a reminder that the younger son was this brother of yours. Your brother, exactly, exactly. And that's that's a real, that's one, again, I think a lot of people would miss on that read. So that's a a very careful choice of Luke. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Now, one of the interesting things about this passage is that the the word Luke uses for celebrate throughout the parable is euphrino, uh, which is an uncommon verb in the New Testament. And with only three exceptions, it occurs only in Luke and Acts, and two of the three are quotations in Paul's letters from the Septuagint. And so I, I think what we should see in this is the influence of the Septuagint on Luke 
not only with reference to theology, but also with reference to his very vocabulary. Right. To me, I think what we see here is that the primary influence on Luke, not only in terms of his theology and, and his, but also in terms of his vocabulary, is the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. So Luke's vocabulary is different from the others because he's so heavily influenced by the Septuagint. So very interesting. Yeah. Did, did he have a copy of the Septuagint? It, it, it I, makes it, sense he may have or had access had. to it, right? Yeah. I mean, some of the quotations he has, you know, they're so verbatim, word for word, it, it it seems to point to that possibility. And again, here, the fact that Luke uses only Luke and Acts, pretty much, in the New Testament, use this verb, mm-hmm. suggests that he got this from the Septuagint. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think, important. It, it's, it's a little more sophisticated research that we know yeah. now that it's not because he's a smart doctor, but it's probably because he's the Septuagint. Yep. Um, yeah, I I'm, so. I'm intrigued. Okay, so. so keep Let's keep going on. What else can we... Yeah, so again, the father's comments lay stress upon the fact that it was appropriate and even necessary to celebrate and rejoice over the prodigal's return. And here again, I think what we're seeing in this whole chapter is that Jesus is turning the conventional attitudes completely on their head, you know, um, Mm -hmm. in in the face of uh, the the mean-spirited, stingy attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes who who complained that he was associating with sinners. You know, he the father basically says it's not only appropriate to celebrate, it's necessary to mm-hmm. celebrate because he was dead, but now he has come to life. He was lost, but now he has been found. And again, once again, the verb apolumi here is in a perfect participle for, for lost. It plays a significant role in this chapter as a descriptor of what was lost. Mm-hmm. The sheep was right. lost in verses in chapter 15, 4, and 6. The coin was lost in mm-hmm. verses 8 and 9. The son was lost in verses 24 and 32. And also, interestingly, in verse 17, uh, when the son says, you know, I'm perishing, he uses the same yeah. verb, apolumi. So, yeah. so it's an interesting, uh, it, I think this kind of con- connects it, the whole co- chapter. Connects it together. And yeah. that, I, I think that's important. It's, it's, it, it, it's very intentional. And mm-hmm. it reminds us I of that so intentionality. Too. I think so. Okay. Too. And so, um, then finally that's um what else can we can we yeah so again i think the father's response to the older son conveys at least a veiled rebuke against the pharisees and scribes for grumbling about jesus (laughs) being willing to eat with sinners rather than rejoicing that those who were lost Mm -hmm. were responding to god's word and had been found do you think the pharisees would have heard this I, I don't know. They were pretty astute at picking up some of his criticisms in his mm-hmm. fair, in, in, in his. But they parables. were there listening to him. So were they there listening to him to catch him? Or were they there listening to him because they were um, intrigued by what he was teaching? I, I were they there? Say. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I think we should note is that later on in Luke 19.10, Jesus explicitly cites his mission as that the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Now, you know, one of the things I think we can obviously see that the prodigal son was lost because he's, he's described as being lost and, and has been found. But I think what we should see is that the, com- the brother's comments betray the fact that the quote-unquote righteous persons who need no repentance were just as lost as the sinners they were looking down on. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, I agree. And, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that the father comes out to the older brother indicates that the father's compassion is just as full and deep for them as it is for the, for the one who was lost. What is left open 
however, and we don't yeah. we don't hear this, you know, the the, right. the the parable doesn't resolve this, is whether the older brother will accept the father's compassion and return right. with him to the party. That's right. what's left open. And I think that's interesting because it's kind of this bang out there, I'm giving you the opportunity yeah. to do it, that. It's an open invitation it, it to really his It really is critics. pretty cool. And yeah. I think, I think if this is presented to a congregation, it, it kind of presents that same kind of of question mark to the to folks you know are, are you the one that's sitting there holding on to these these grudges and these and and it, you're you're not whole because you're writhing with anger about about something you could do nothing about you know and 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 instead of of, of falling into that that love that's offered to you right. so it's really a, a very intriguing yeah. Um, story. Yeah, and, and I think it's intentional. I think I think oh, I yeah. think uh, uh, you know the in, I think the parable ends with this in, open-ended invitation to the Pharisees and scribes who were I grumbling agree. and yeah, criticizing I agree. Jesus. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So I mean, really, this is a a really rich parable. What we've learned today it is. Um, is. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, Christy's going to take us through some illustrations and talk about how uh, the Reformers approached the parable of the prodigal son. So talk to us, Christy. Sure. So when I went to go research this today, it's kind of interesting because this is one of the best-known parables, right? Everybody knows it. And um, uh, it's just like today when you talk with 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 people at least that have some Christian background most people know this particular one and it has come down to us really through um, not only hearing it but I think through images and the images of this um, have permeated our our minds and our hearts about it and and frankly they have taken off this in many cases, the, the, the third scene, right? They're the one with the elder son. So the images that come to mind are much like Rembrandt's famous image with the, um, uh, the prodigal son on his knees, you know, arms around the father. And there's this, there's this sense of embracing. And his picture, while is the most famous, there's, there's many others throughout the tradition that have that same image really right. dating back through our our medieval period yeah, that, that moment in the parable seems to be the focal point of, yes of Christian yes art. and so that is what we've internalized for it and that is also of course what our reformers internalized mm-hmm. and so we saw this um all the way through um not only the medieval period but in through the reformation and there's the the one the one clear piece from it is this kind of this love of god um, and, and God's um, grace, be it Roman Catholic or or Protestant, there was this sense that God is graceful. God loves us. And I will talk a little bit later about how this, how they do tend to get some polemic in some of of the discussion later. But it, at least initially, there's this kind of single agreement on that. It's just, you know, uh, why does the prodigal son come back? that becomes the big question mark in their minds. Huh, interesting. And we'll get to that in a little bit here. But I wanted to, before I head there, and um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, 
you know, this, this image, image tradition. And probably the most famous of these in the Middle Ages is the 13th century stained glass on the Chartres Cathedral. And this is the whole, basically the whole story played out. Um, but it does not do much with the elder son. I mean, there's, mm. there's, there's picture after picture after picture of the younger son leaving, you know, getting involved with... Uh, squandering his money etc with the pigs we see him pretty much unclothed and coming back with the embrace scene at the center and um and the party at the end and there's i think we one that has the elder son kind of to the side but he's really in the side to that right. whole that whole window focal space is tradition. still on the prodigal, it's still on the prodigal side not on the father oh, really? either so not much i mean more well more i think i mean the whole story is more on the son i mean mm -hmm. and i think that's why it comes to us and we when we think of the story we think about that character first and instead of as maybe the sure. son i mean i think you could look at this as kind of a, a three-part thing with the father at the Absolutely. center like we talked about the, yeah. the concept of the prodigal father at the center and that is not how tradition has treated it and i think that's important for us because i think that um i think that mindset has permeated our reformers when they come i mean they already know about this through tradition before they ever read it sure. themselves sure um, it's, it's, if you will, it's embedded in all the minds. Um, so what I want to do, and I, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time today, but I wanted to pull out a couple of the themes that do come out. Um, first, in the Reformation is the first time that we do see a new emphasis on the elder son. The stuff in the younger son is pretty typical, pretty what we would expect them to say about him. But the elder son, they start to kind of pull apart. Why is this in the scripture? Um, and I, I think that's really interesting. The, the most emphasized view by the reformers is that the elder son represented the Pharisees and the scribes. So I don't know that this was particularly pulled out before, but it's definitely pulled out now. Um, and that these, um, the elder son, um, you know, believed that he was righteous, just as those Pharisees and scribes. Um, and they believed that they would be saved and did not really see how a sinner, such as that younger son, could be saved. Right. He didn't do anything right. He, yeah, he, he, he mm -hmm. felt like he had a right to claim that he had, you know, he, he belonged in the father's household. And this younger son, right. this, this son of yours, right, right, right. Doesn't be, no right. longer belongs in the household. And that seems to be the notion of the Pharisees and the scribes in, in grumbling mm -hmm. about Jesus welcoming the sinners. It's like they don't belong in right. the household of God. Exactly. And there's this very negative tone. And we see this with most reformers. They kind of have that negative tone towards them, to be honest with you. Mm. They don't really emphasize the the significance like we just talked about of this of this elder son but of course coming you know here ding 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 guess who's the one who's who really puts mm -hmm. puts a different spin is calvin i love it when calvin <laughs> when calvin confirms my interpretation <laughs> of the bible well I, you know it's uh, calvin uh, obviously he's one of the great reformers and this is why this is really why he 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 pushes, and unfortunately in modern day, as we've talked so many times, they put him into a little corner. But his his interpretation is so much more sophisticated, um, and really pushes us to to new ways of thinking about scripture. Yeah, I and, mean, when you look at him through the lens of the Calvinism that's so rigid, mm -hmm. you know, you tend to think of him as a Pharisee or a scribe almost, right? You know, in, his, right. in his own right, right. So Calvin says, "Look." Um, 
he says this is this is a criticism of, of the Pharisees and that that position of their willingness to forgive. But he says, look, this elder son has some redeeming quali- qualities. This is a person that has followed the rules, and and that's okay to follow the rules. But it doesn't give you a right to ignore someone else by not forgiving saying, look, you don't have to go out and squander, come and have this, this <laughs> come to Jesus moment, come back. Right. But you do, you can't use your righteousness to judge somebody else's path. And, and Well, and I've said it many times, you know, those who have benefited from God's mercy and unfailing love are, are compelled by Scripture to extend that same mercy and love to all, pe- all persons. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so... You know, Calvin gives more compassion here to to the Pharisees, to the elder son, and um, and it's it's a time we have picked up in Luke before. We've seen this before that occasionally that one Pharisee comes in and and is 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 on his side. So it it, it makes a much richer story than maybe we drew before, and and certainly um, and certainly kind of fits with how Calvin views society. Look. Everyone needs a chance to be forgiven. Everyone needs a chance. Now, ultimately, that double predestination suggests, and maybe someone never, never turns, and there's space for that. But it doesn't mean that most people are in that situation, right? Um, so there's a lot of compassion in his his yeah, in Calvin's space like for those that. who come back to the church. Yeah, yeah I, like I think that. so too. I think so too, and. You know, realistically, and we haven't talked too much, but Calvin's experience in in France and of being persecuted and having persecuted people um, reach out to him in desperation because France, France is a hot. You know, we often don't think of France as being a hotbed of the Reformation because they end up being so staunchly Catholic right. that we think of it as a Catholic country. But the Huguenot population, many right. of whom will leave France, actually during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, ultimately, so. But they are there, and they are um, they are reaching out for help for Calvin. And Calvin realizes that pain and fear of being excluded, sure. and he does have space for those folks that are Roman Catholics that haven't yet turned over, haven't mm. yet seen this new space of a Protestant yeah. world. And so he has more compassion there than one would think. Yeah, I don't think we I don't think we tend to think of Calvin as someone who was persecuted, but he was. Oh, heavily. Heavily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Calvin most of his life was on the run. Yeah. And we forget that and he has a real empathy for folks and he has some some patience for folks too who don't automatically jump ship. He recognizes that that's a hard spiritual sure. shift when you have been in one kind of mindset for a long time and then you are 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 are, are supposed to pray and 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 shift and so he there's a lot more compassion there than sometimes i think people give him credit for but ultimately he expects people to make that shift if right. they're truly of god and if they're not then then there's consequences right if right. if, if you, they, you there's some space where you come to yourself if you right. will right right, right. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to point out, um, and perhaps my favorite, is this kind of emphasis um, on Protestant theology. Now, this seems like a huge stretch, but I'll, <laughs> I'll put it into perspective for you. So there's this idea, and the question relies around why does the prodigal son come to back to the father? Yeah. And so, and why is he forgiven? So... Is it because the Protestants would argue the the grace of God, right? right? 
um, and his faith in the grace, right? right? Uh, you know, that's the justification by faith alone. That's Luther 101. As Luther says, the prodigal son trusts in God and confesses his sins, which <laughs> demonstrates that one is saved through faith without works. Yeah. But the Roman Catholics use this answer the same question saying, because he repented, he did this act, and then he confessed. <laughs> well, it fits Love. into the space of the sacrament of penance, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he, he cared. I'm sure they would say he, he went through all the steps necessary Absolutely. to complete the sacrament of penance. Absolutely. And I think as you're listening, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I could see both of those. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I could see. And this becomes, so they start to use this story um, to emphasize what theological point mm. they want to use. Now, we see it mostly, and I'm going on the work of other folks because this is not my specialty, but I, um, I, I looked heavily at the work of um, Barbara Hager. She's a um, emeritus professor from the art history department at the University of Michigan. And her specialty is in 16th and 17th century Netherlandish art, which had a lot of Reformation themes. That mm-hmm. was a big thing sure. there because there's a very, very great uh, Protestant Roman Catholic battle that goes on in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in your modern history, that's why the Netherlands are separated from Belgium, right? Oh. And that's why Belgium is still Roman Catholic and the Netherlands are Protestant. Wow. I mean, to this day, in our orange, you know, you know the Dutch, the orange, that's all right. William of Orange, that's a Protestant I reflection. See. So this is caught up into its modern day identity too, wow. right? That was all one area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> anyway, so this is a really good place to look at polemical work. Pro- Catholic versus Protestant work, and because the art tradition is so great, um, there's lots to look at. So anyway, um, Professor Hager points out that um, there's a great deal of this polemic scene, like in plays and drama, and the, where they'll actually use the story um, to to tell either the Roman Catholic side or the Protestant side, which is really, really fascinating. Um, and then ultimately. Um, 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 we also see it in art. Now, she said it's not a major theme in art, but she found this wonderful <laughs> series of woodcuts by Cornelius Anthones um, on the prodigal son. And so while there's, this, there's six panels that tell the story, there's two in particular that she pulls out in her analysis of this. Um, and I'll, we'll put a link to it on um, our website. Um, that point out this polemic. And I just find it fascinating that here they're using art to kind of push this. So art that, and and, you know, I started my discussion with how art has created in people an assumption about this, about this parable. And so now we're moving to how art's going to push some kind of uh, particular position. Theological agenda, Uh right? uh So the first one she points out, and I'm just, um, I'm, I'm reflecting what she tells us. Um, is um, actually the third in the series, and it's entitled "The Prodigal Son Excelled, Excuse Me, Expelled from the Inn." And so, in this, you see the prodigal son kind of being beaten out of the inn, um, looking not fully clothed even yeah, at this right. point. Pretty haggard, right? Pretty haggard, being led by superstitio um, um, towards um, the synagogue of Satan. So, in other words, this person's just going down if you will and the synagogue of Satan is a um, pope like 
person with papal crown on his head and um, death morbus above his head. So it's kind of this idea of this this idea of this pilgrim, and they actually she actually identifies the um, um, she actually identifies the uh, the prodigal son as the pilgrim. Mm. So uh, following superstition. So there's there's a lot there's an attack here on on the tradition of going on pilgrimage. And so his outing was, if you will, a pilgrimage huh. to find, Interesting. oh, Satan is taking wow. him to Satan and he's being led there through. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the thing that amazes me is this has really absolutely nothing to do with the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, they basically just lifted the character mm-hmm. of the prodigal out of the, par- out of the parable R- and used that character to, to, to mm-hmm. criticize mm-hmm. the Catholic mm-hmm. tradition exactly. of pilgrimage and being led astray, yeah. you know, to, from, from uh, I, exactly. the, the true way, I guess, into, super, into a superstition and, and into the, the, the church, right. which is really right. the synagogue well, of Satan. In a way, it's like going your own path has already mm-hmm. led you down there, and you're looking for all the wrong places, which right. they're implying looking for wrong places in pilgrimage sites. Right. I mean, that's exactly right. what that does. That, that will lead you even further astray, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but you're right. It has no, that has nothing to do with the prodigal son. <laughs> But yet here it is in this series of woodcuts. And then she points out the next one, which I like even better. Um, The next, this is actually number six of the of the frames that she points out. And here, um, the prodigal son is is rejoined with his father, but the father is titled as um, peace. Mm -hmm. And then you see the father holding uh, holding a feather of peace. Of course, the prodigals clothed here. In this case, you see the Holy Spirit over their head. You know, kind of kind of showing this is this godly reunion, right? And then, but what's really interesting about this, the the Protestant polemic here is that this is happening in this church, very clearly a church. And you see the two, you see the two um, uh, sacraments portrayed the, the the communion and baptism and what's interesting and if you look at the communion it's it's not of a priest giving you know mm-hmm. ki- but but it's with penitents around it and it's around a table as we might think of in a, a very traditional um protestant style and in here then we see the elder son so he, elder son comes in but elder son is not allowed into the church and is being held off by justice and kind of implying that this person has been too caught up in his righteousness he's not truly forgiven in in the same purity that this this repentant prodigal son has so again it's amazing you know the way they they have taken here the prodigal and the elder brother and and included them in this in this scene which basically presents the Protestant theology as the true exactly, way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and but again, it has absolutely nothing to do with with the parable of the prodigal son. In, indeed, I might even I might even want to say that to some extent, these these um, the, the themes in these woodcuts are actually contrary to the point of the parable <laughs> of the prodigal son, which is God's mercy, you know, extends to all, and we're to be compassionate toward all, right? Right. Isn't that isn't that <laughs> yeah. interesting? Yeah, yeah. But they were mostly caught up with how you know how one is forgiven, and is it by and they wanted to portray here by God's grace. That's yeah. what they're 
That's what they were trying uh, to push yeah. here, that particular agenda. And I think that's really interesting, um, but it's how this is used that way. And again, I think they are pulling into the original um, visual tradition, which is that sense of God's grace extending and that full, honest love. I think because that goes in both traditions. Sure. And so now they're pushing the visual um, images to, to kind of go another step. The, the the right place to find that grace. So exactly. Yes. Yeah. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. So anyway, that's a really fun and interesting kind of way that this has been used. Mm. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody, and, and we're back. And, you know, as I got thinking about this during our break, um, and, and when I've heard the parable in the past, you know, I think we love the story that we know, the, the one that the images, the, the, just the, the, uh, the radical love of the father embracing his son, and that's the one that, that our pictures show us. But I think many of us really identify with the older son, oh, you yeah. know, and I think... Um, I think there's more of a conflict there in, in our minds than we think of, because as we really step and look at this really awful behavior of the younger son, and if we are careful people that feel that we've done the right thing, it's it's really hard for us to forgive the way that we're being asked to forgive. And I think that question mark out there really pushes hard. I don't know, Alan, what, what do you think? Yeah, I you know, I think um, I would say it this way. Um, I mean, I... When I look at my life, I'm the elder brother. You mm-hmm. know, um, I think many of us are. I, yeah, I, I've been in church since I was in utero. You know, mm-hmm. and I started. You know, I I, I start. I was called to ministry and at 17, and I went straight into college and started working and serving in various ways from that time on. And so, you know, I think it's important for us to realize that there's a lot of us who've grown up in church. We can either consciously or unconsciously adopt the same attitudes that the scribes and the Pharisees had. And here's here's the thing that I find curious is that, you know, it's easy, I think, for us to relatively easy for us to understand uh, Jesus telling the parable in the situation of his ministry. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about it from the from a uh, that that sort of historical perspective. In Jesus' ministry, it makes sense mm-hmm. because we know he had pushback from the Jewish religious leaders for right. his associations with people who were deemed less than. Mm-hmm. But here's the question in my mind. Why did Luke choose to in- devote a whole chapter of his gospel yeah. to these parables and to this theme? Right. Be- because Luke was writing his gospel, not, not just to... To, to tell the story of Jesus accurately, right. but he was also writing his gospel to address issues that were going on in mm-hmm. the community that yeah. he was addressing. So yeah. what was going on in the community he was addressing that he felt it was important enough to devote a whole chapter to this issue yeah. of, you know, you know, presenting God's grace as something that, you know, extends perhaps recklessly uh, in some people's minds to all persons. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and I think about, I think about my general, you know, kind of 
thoughts about Luke. And I often think, oh, well, you're the radical love. And he reaches out to populations that other people don't, like women mm-hmm. and, 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 and Gentiles. And uh, Luke is very much a gospel of yeah, reaching out to the outcasts. And, and to the outcasts. And we, we see that with the, with the younger son, you know, that he becomes an outcast and is welcomed back in. But the next one's interesting, too, because it says, in a way... Even those of you that are so righteous and full of yourselves, he forgives you too. Mm-hmm. And I think we for, I forget that about Luke. Sometimes I think th- people feel left out of Luke if they're the elder son. Sure. Does it really appeal to? Does it really apply to me too? It does. You know? Uh, yeah, uh, you I would know? say it does. And I think that's a that's really cool. <laughs> actually. Well, it is. It is. I mean, it's it's. I mean, and again, this is not just sort of the scandalous theology of Jesus regarding God's character. Right. This is the biblical theology right, about right, God's character. Right. God's mercy, God's unfailing love, God's compassion extends to all those who right. will who, who who turn to him. But turn to him. And I think that's the important clue. It this does this is not just um you know, you're just if you will, you're just saying because you're out there. This is because you've just because you've trusted in God or you you've, you've you've fallen into that grace I mean I I guess in my concepts of 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 free will that that we're always given this chance to kind of run away from God God seems to allow us to do that um and maybe keeps poking us and wanting us back but it seems to me that we could say I'm sorry um and uh I always pray that at the last minute someone changes a heart um, sure. but nonetheless I think there's there's always this the space and the freedom to do that. So this tells us that, but you, you can come back anytime, even if that well, heart and, is and, and hardened. And the, com- the coming back applies not only to those who may be seen as quote-unquote sinners, but also to those who feel themselves to be quote-unquote right. righteous persons who need right, no dependence. Right, right. But think it's, it's, it's a reminder that the sinners are, are not just those that w- we target as sinners, but really everybody. Right, right. <laughs> I, I think it's important because, you know, the, the whole issue around um, around um, the scribes and Pharisees objecting to the fact that Jesus was eating with quote unquote sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a boundary marker for for them. And um, you know, uh, there's been some some sociological study about uh, boundary markers in religious groups. Um, we know that the boundary markers for the Jewish community um, that were you know basically under pressure by a, a world that was very different and you know, held very different values from theirs. The, the boundary markers were circumcision and, and Sabbath observance mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm, observing exactly. the food laws, you know, which, which meant also um, boundaries around mm-hmm. who you ate with and who right, you didn't eat right, with. Right, right, right. And, and, so, and, and, you know, we've talked about this before, that when a community is under pressure from the outside, those boundaries right. be, tend to become rigid. Yeah. And, and these sort of external markers, like circumcision and observance of the Sabbath and the food laws, sort of take on a, um, a, an outsized kind of importance. As, as It's almost like these are peripheral to the biblical faith mm-hmm. that, that we would say was the Jewish faith, but they become more important because that's how you decide. That's how you can can identify who's in and who's out, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I, yeah. you know, it makes me wonder when I think about Luke including this whole chapter in his gospel. It makes me wonder if some of that wasn't going on in the Christian community as well. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah. I, I, I'm absolutely sure it was, and I think that goes on in our 
communities today. And, oh, sure. you know, I, I, well, I was thinking about, you know, shortly after the Reformation and we start to see Gene- Calvin's Geneva and as it begins to be filled with these people who are responding to God in these certain ways, but then there seems to be this sense of, well, they're not, they're claiming to be Christian, but they're not acting Christian and therefore they're probably not. And so it, this is really an interesting balance, if you will, between, you know, um, um, orthodoxy and orthopraxis yeah, practice sure, i think sure, that we are sure. looking at here and yeah it's and not just your theology it's 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 these boundary behaviors mm-hmm, that, exactly. that that mark your that identify you as either in or out and, right and right yeah there's a there's a, a sociologist named wayne meeks who did a lot of work with um, the new testament era mm-hmm. and identified some of the uh, some of the key boundary markers for the christian community and um you know i i, I think we could say that even even the early christians you know they were under pressure as well and right, very right. likely, you know, it, it's 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 very possible, or maybe even probable, that they developed some of the similar attitudes to the ones that the scribes and the Pharisees were right. were 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 um, showing. You know, we can see even in, in the New Testament itself some evidences of controversies that were going on in churches where people were divided over certain things, like, do you eat? meat that has been offered to idols right right you know exactly uh, uh, do, you know these kinds of things and and um you know we might think of that as being something external but right. um you know again those those external boundary markers took right. on kind of an outsized importance in, in that world in the reformation um you know they talked about what's important and what's not mm-hmm. and so they would look at things that they considered to be really not essential for the faith is the adiaphora is unnecessary it doesn't matter these things don't matter whether and 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 melanchthon was really big at trying to define what what things are are really really essential what's not you know and and in his opinion whatever happens to the bread and the and the and the wine Uh, this is really doesn't matter because God's grace is conveyed through well, the community. And, and I right. even think about the early 20th century, the, the modernist fundamentalist controversy, where the yes. fundamentalists define sort of various lists mm-hmm. of the, 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 the fundamentals of the faith that one had to believe in order to truly be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, the inerrancy of Scripture, right. the substitutionary atonement of, of, of Christ, um, bodily resurrection, right, right. Um, uh, these kinds of things, uh, 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 um, a literal return of Jesus. Right, you know, right. these were all things that one had to believe in order to become a Christian. And it's funny because as that as that process went on, the list expanded. <laughs> the list expands, and then there becomes this kind of. Well, and if they don't truly believe that, or if they don't, if they question it, then we really shouldn't allow them to participate. In, in the sacraments of the Absolutely. church. And so you get this kind of judgment that comes um, with it. Yeah. So Well, and, you know, the other thing I think is that even, you know, even today in the Presbyterian church, we may not have a list of things mm-hmm. that serves as the boundary markers, but the boundary marker is, are you in church or not? Yeah, so that's right. so the boundary marker becomes, well, I'm a churchgoer, and I've always been a churchgoer, and I've attended church all my life. Therefore, I'm 
you know, right. you know I deserve the, to be part of the household of God. Right. The folks out there who aren't in church every mm-hmm. Sunday, you know, why aren't they here? And what's, you know, why won't they come? And, and they're, sort, they're sort of on the outside. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think the parable is meant to, it sort of turns everything on its head because the one in the parable who needs the most forgiveness is the elder son who I never agree. left. Uh, that's right. <laughs> the that's one in right. the parable who needs God's grace and compassion most of all is the elder son. But are they willing to accept it? For yeah. example, like the el- younger son is, and right. so that I think there's this, I think there's this kind of opening, and we've talked about this before. It's got God's grace working in you, mm-hmm. but that freedom to turn away is sure. still very much there. But Isn't at the same good? time, I mean, you know, I think it's. I think the point of the parable is to show. Yeah, God's grace extends to, quote-unquote, sinners. Right. But God's grace also extends to those who see right. themselves as righteous persons and who right. have no need of repentance. The whole mm-hmm. parable the whole parable is really uh, approaching the conventional attitudes in, in the Jewish mm-hmm. society and turning them on their head. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, to me, that's what, that's what God's love and mercy and grace does. You know, it, right. it takes right. all these notions about who's in and who's out and and you know who's a sinner and who's righteous and it basically turns them on their head but at the at the end of the day it says everyone's invited everyone benefits from god's compassion right the the father is reckless with his compassion towards the prodigal who returns but he's just as generously reckless or recklessly generous with his compassion Mm -hmm. towards the elder son who stands outside and pouts Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and i think we're meant to see the the father's compassion is is what is really the heart of this parable in both cases, both with the prodigal who returns mm-hmm. and with the old elder brother who stands outside because yeah. he he th- he agree. thinks that the, su- the 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 that hit the you know the prodigal right. son doesn't deserve right right such well generosity. yeah well and yeah and his his heart isn't turned towards love it's turned towards yeah it, it, it's, it's turned hardened. towards envy it's hardened and, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so well I. I think that's a really good discussion of this. I hope that you have found this to be as rich of a parable as I have. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.